That's okay, though. Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to the second chapter of the book of Haggai. I don't know about y'all. I've been enjoying the Minor Prophets. I've been enjoying doing this. It's a little out of the ordinary for, uh, for, for pulpits. I think I don't hear them that often. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, lie down with dogs, wake up with fleas? Lie down with dogs, wake up with fleas. Uh, the idea behind this little cultural proverb is be careful about the company you keep because it might rub off, right? Isn't that kind of the idea behind it? You lay down with the dog, you're going to get up with fleas. There's a danger in that, though. Uh, For one thing... Sin doesn't necessarily generally work that way. I don't know about y'all, but I, I've never been around somebody, and this is, this is part of the danger. Maybe you see this right now. You'll hear it in my voice, and if you recall a little bit, then we'll get to the second part in just a second. I've never been around somebody that I just thought, you know, if, if someone were to emanate sin, if I were to just ever be around somebody that just glowed with an evil light of sinfulness, I don't know that I've ever just been infected by it. Just by walking by them or shaking hands with them. And second, when you say lie down with dogs, get up with fleas, we usually assume that we're not the dog. It's real dangerous to say something like that because what if you the flea bitten much yourself? We're going to talk about personal holiness today. And this is a real, real, real dangerous topic for us because we tend to go one of two ways with it. Just because we're people, we either go way over here and we go into the deep darkness of depression and assume that there's no way we're ever going to have personal holiness. Or we go way, 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 way over here to the other spectrum of pride and we assume that we've got personal holiness and everybody else would if they looked more like us. When really the answer is, is neither of those. But personal, y'all listen to me. Personal holiness and I love the grace of God. I'm going to stand up here today and I'm going to talk about the grace of God. I'm going to stand up here today and tell you you can't earn the, the, the pleasure of God. You can't do that. But I'm also not going to stand up here and tell you that your own personal holiness doesn't matter. If you claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ today, there ought to be a degree of personal holiness in your life. And it ought to be increasing as your life goes on. Does that make sense? Your life ought to be looking more and more and more like Jesus every day. If it doesn't, I'm not saying you're not going to have setbacks. We all do because we're all fallen. But if you do not look at your life and see at the very least a desire for personal holiness, that would lead me to question whether or not you actually have a relationship with the Lord. Because that is a natural outgrowth of it. So we're going to talk about personal holiness today. So if you would stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be in the second chapter of the book of Haggai, and we're going to start in verse 10, and we're going to read five really weird verses until we explain them. Verse 10. 
On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priests answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priests answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer here is unclean. Father, I pray that you would bless us with an understanding of your word here, and that it would affect the way we live our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I've titled our sermon, Communicable Unholiness. There's a lot of weird stuff in this passage, isn't there? What in the world is holy meat? It might make me a, 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 I don't know, maybe it just makes me a man. But the first time I read holy meat, I thought when they got ribeyes on sale at Ingalls. <laughs> That's nice. That sounds like some holy meat to me. That's not what we're talking about. Even though, it, if, if y'all do find ribeyes on sale at Ingalls, let me know. I've been instructed by, by my boss to buy them whenever they're on sale. But what is holy meat? What is holiness? What is this altar? What is, what is all this? And what does this have to do with us? We don't have any altars. We don't have any temples. We don't, you, holy meat to us, might, you, you might have a definition like I do, but I don't think that's what's going on here. What does this have to do with us? A lot. A whole lot. So let's dig into this. We're only going to divide this text into two halves. So I'm going to be a bad Baptist and do two points instead of three, but we're going to do it anyway because that's the way the text lines up. First thing we need to look at is that holiness is not communicable beyond the first degree. What does this mean? Let's dive into verse 10. So on the 24th day of the ninth month of the second year of Darius, why are we getting these dates? You remember what our folks in Haggai are doing? That God's people have come back into the land, they've been exiled, and when they got back, they wanted to reestablish worship of God. Biblically, it's, it's an admirable desire, right? We've been in exile. We've been out of the promised land. We haven't been able to worship God the way he told us to. Because to worship God the way he told us to, this is the Old Testament, we've got to have the temple. We've got to have the altar. We've got to be able to carry out sacrifices. So they lay down the foundation. They get started and oh, they're excited. The foundation of the temple is laid. It's, it, it won't be long and we'll be back where we need to be. So they lay the foundation. Well, the foundation is not good enough. You've got to have the altar. You can't bring sacrifices. So they set up the altar and they dedicate it. Oh my goodness, we're so excited. We've got the foundation of the temple laid. We've got the altar built. We can offer sacrifices here. We're so good. But then they get distracted. They've got the foundation laid. They've got the altar set up. But then they get busy noticing while they're in the midst of building the temple that, hey, well, maybe I need to fix my roof. My roof's leaking. And then they fix their roof. And then, oh, well, I need to, you know, I got some, some crack paneling on my walls. I need to fix that. And then, oh, I need to work on, on, on my door. I got a creaky door in the back. Let me get some ancient Israelite WD-40 and we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. And they just keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this until you finally get to the point earlier in the book of Haggai where God says, if you don't care about building my house, I don't care about helping you build yours. And 
he sends Haggai to tell his people this, and the people actually listen. They actually listen, and they repent, and they turn from their selfishness, and they set to work building God's house. And he says, y'all, I know that you're looking at what you're building right now, and you don't think that it's nearly as good as it used to be, but I promise you, I'm going to make the glory of the later temple, I'm going to make the later glory better than the first. Just keep chopping. Just keep going. And you're going to get there. I'm going to make sure you get there. But then you get to this weird sermon. This is a sermon, believe it or not. Wouldn't you love it if my sermons were this short? This is a sermon. And Haggai preaches this and he asks them these hypothetical questions that have to do with ancient Israelite religious practice. And he says to go to the priests and ask this question. If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment... And with the edge, he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food. Will it become holy? Well, we got a lot of questions from that. First question is actually, what is holy meat? What is this going on? Which actually leads us to another question. What is holy? What does holiness mean? Because if we don't know what holiness means, we certainly don't know what holy meat is. To be holy... This is from, this is from the uh, New American Commentary. I thought it was a great definition. To be holy means to be set apart. Either intrinsically, in the sense that God is separate from limitation, weakness, impurity, or sin. There's nothing else in the universe like God. He is set apart. He is an entity of His own. This is why we don't make images of Him. You know, the commandment, don't make any graven images. Anything that you might make to be a symbol of God is not going to accurately reflect Him. So don't even try. He's set apart. He's he's an entity in and of Himself. Or, extrinsically, in the sense that people or objects may be created for a sacred purpose. You know, the best illustrations I have are, are the ones that I've experienced myself. And they make baby products that I did not even know existed. I didn't even know they were a real thing. They have these little sterilizer bags. Have you seen these? That you you wash your bottles and I don't know, again, probably just because I'm a man, I figure if you just get the soap and the water in the brush, you can wash them and you're good. No, you're not good. They must be sterilized. So you wash them and you rinse them and then you put them in this little bag and you put just a little bit of water in it and then you put it in your microwave and it turns the water into, it steam sterilizes these bottles. And you do this in your microwave. And the first time Emily did it, I just looked at it and I was like, this is the neatest thing. I didn't even know you could do this. I thought you had to have a steam cleaner. And she's like, well, that's what these bags are. But once the stuff comes out of the bag, you you put it in a special spot. Why? Because it has been, to borrow a biblical term, sanctified, consecrated. It's been made clean for use strictly with the baby. If I want a Dr. Pepper, I don't go into the kitchen and grab a bottle and pour my Dr. Pepper in it and drink it and then put it back on the shelf. A, that would just be weird. B, it's been set apart for use with the baby and sterilized so that she is the only one who gets it. Same thing with with things that we say are set apart to God. If you set something apart for God, He's the only one that gets it. It doesn't belong to anybody else. 
the, the kicker that I always love is when somebody says that they donate. And again, I don't know that this has happened here. I don't. If it has, maybe this will deal with it. But when somebody says, I want to donate this to the church. And then they give it to the church. But there are stipulations with it. I want to donate it to the church, but I get to decide what room it goes in, how it's oriented. I can come use it whenever I want to. So basically, I get a tax write-off, but I still get all the benefits of owning it. No, 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 no. Once it's set apart for God, once you've given it to Him, it's no longer yours. You don't get to keep it. It's set aside. The altar was sanctified. It was set aside for God. The altar was an instrument that was holy, not in the sense that it was perfect, but in the sense that it was set apart by the blood of sacrifice, consecrated for exclusive use by and for a holy set apart God. That altar was His and only His. If you put that on that altar, it better be for God. What do I mean it was sanctified and set apart? Well, I put this on your handout. Look at this. Leviticus 8, 14 and 15. And he brought the bull for the sin offering. Then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering. And Moses killed it. Then he took the blood and put some on the horns of the altar all around with his finger and purified the altar. And he poured the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. The shedding of that atoning blood from the sin offering marked the altar as God's. It is purified. It is separate from the sin of its people it is holy it is set apart for him so this brings us back to our question what is holy meat well what do you do with an altar you sacrifice on it so when you offer a sacrifice on the altar what did you think that they did with all the sacrifices do you think that they just burned it and threw away what was left of it no the priests ate it The majority of sacrifice, now there were some that were totally burnt, but the majority of them, Levites ate the meat that was offered on the altar. It wasn't just wasted. So they ate it. But once that meat was offered on that altar, only the Levites who had been consecrated and set apart could touch it or eat it. Because it had come into contact with the altar and because its blood had been spilt as a sin offering, it was holy. It was consecrated. And ironically, listen to this. This question that Haggai is asking, it actually shows up in multiple places in the Red Scripture. I added this on your handout too. Ezekiel 44, 19. When they go out into the outer court, he's talking about priests. To the outer court to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers and put on other garments. And in their holy garments, they shall not sanctify the people. Because they had been ministering and they were covered in this blood from all of these sacrifices that were made holy because they were offered on this sanctified altar, God had to tell them, this blood that is on you, these clothes... They are holy because they have come into contact with the shed blood of the sacrifice. 
So you've got to change clothes. These clothes cannot come in contact with that which has not been sanctified. They have to be preserved. The altar sanctifies the offering and the offering sanctifies whatever it touches. Whatever comes into contact with it. So now that we've cleared all this up, which I hope we have, question and answer time will follow if necessary. God's question is, so if the altar is sanctified, and by virtue of the altar being sanctified, the gift is sanctified, and by virtue of the gift being sanctified, your clothes are, when they touch it, can you make holy other things by touching them with your clothes? Does this seem just like a silly line of questioning for God to be answering? Like, like why is he doing this? He has a point, I promise. And they ask the priest, and the priests correctly answer, No! Your clothes don't make anything holy. So what does that have to do with us? Here's your application, Stapleton. Holiness is not communicable beyond the first degree. It takes contact with the sacrifice and the shed blood of the sin offering for you to be rendered holy and usable by God. Translation, you cannot hitchhike off of somebody else's holiness. You cannot hitchhike off of somebody else's holiness. We as Christians, we don't look to a burnt offering in a tabernacle somewhere for us to be made holy. We look to the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago to be made holy. Instead of having an altar that things were burned on, we have a cross that God was crucified on. That is our altar. That is our sacrifice. And we are made holy in the same way that those clothes were made holy. When we come into contact with the blood of the sacrifice, we are made pure by it. In this equation, we are the clothes. We are the things that have been made holy by contact with the sacrifice and its blood. But do you know what that means? If you find somebody who has been purified, i.e. if you find somebody who's given their life to Jesus Christ, and you want to hang out with them because you think their holiness is going to rub off and save you, and you're going to get saved because they are, that's not how it works. Do not for one second think that if you surround yourself with people who have come into contact with the blood themselves, who have gone to the altar themselves, who have come to Christ for repentance themselves, that their holiness is going to pass over to you. What does this generally sound like? What, how does this play itself out? Well, are you a Christian? Yes. But then it's followed with, my grandma was, and my mama was, and I'm a member of the same church they were. That's not what I asked. Had you been to the cross? Had you been to the altar? Had you been covered in the blood? You, parents, this doesn't pass from parent to child. This doesn't pass from grandparent to grandchild. This doesn't pass like Jesus chicken pox. 
It's not like you have one person that's saved and you put them in a room and send as many people as you can and the holiness is just going to disseminate. If you want to be made holy, if you want to be made pure, you have got to go to the offering yourself. You've got to go to the cross yourself. I know that's a simple application, but it bears being repeated because every church I've ever been in, there has been someone that gave me that answer. That they're saved by their association with their parent, their grandparent, their church membership. What about this? They're giving. I give to a church that's full of saved people. If you're not saved yourself, you can give a $10,000 check this morning and die and bust hell wide open. There's no price on your soul that you can pay. Go to the offering yourself. Be covered in the blood yourself. Do not trust in the salvation of your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your grandma, your grandpa, your church membership, your golf buddies. Don't trust in their personal holiness to suffice for you. You go to the altar yourself. There is only one way to be made holy, and that is to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. I put this on your handout. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. That should, that should clue into you right now that the whole reason we've got the temple in the Old Testament is to educate us about how things with God work. That the tabernacle, the temple, is just a copy. It's just a shadow of the true thing. But in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often. As the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. These, excuse me, these sacrifices that were burnt and killed on the altar were offered over and over and over and over and over and over. And every time blood was spilled, every time the fire of the altar was lit, it was a reminder that there was sin in the camp. That sin had to be forgiven and the result of sin is death. And so because sin was never totally dealt with, the high priest had to offer the sacrifice year after year after year. But it says Jesus didn't have to offer himself often. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's why we don't sacrifice bulls and goats and we don't have an altar out behind this church. Why? Because our sacrifice was given once and for all, done 2,000 years ago. That blood was shed. Are you covered in it? Because you can't rub up against the garments of somebody else who is and be made holy by their own holiness. You need yours. You need to be covered in the blood of the sacrifice yourself. Holiness is not communicable beyond the first degree. If you don't go to the sacrifice, you don't have it. You can't get it from somebody else. Then second, unholiness is is communicable 
but not quite in the way you think. This, this takes us back to uh, what I said at the beginning. You know how we like to say if you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas? This is generally the way we think about unholiness. We tend to think about unholiness as something those people have. Who is those people? I don't know. Whatever you thought in your head when I said those people, that's who those people are. It's something different for everybody. And that's the way we tend to think about it. Well, I don't want to get mixed up with them because whatever it is they've got might rub off on me. But again, that fails to consider what if they're not the dogs? What if they're not the ones with fleas? What if we are? Maybe we're worried about their sin catching on to us when we ought to be worried about our sin catching on to others. Maybe we've got this backwards. Maybe we're self-righteous. Maybe we think so much about ourselves that we can't process. Maybe we're the ones that need to examine ourselves rather than judging those out there. Let's look at the next question that Haggai asked in verse 13. So now we've dealt with the fact that, that holiness is not communicable. We've dealt with that. But what about unholiness? Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So what does this mean, any of these? All of the things that he listed in the first one. So you're walking around with your, your holy ribeye in your priest garment. You're walking through your house and your garment brushes up against the pot of soup that, that Mama Levite has on the stove. The soup is not holy because your, your clothes have, have brushed against it. But what if Jim Bob, who's been out in the countryside today, cleaning stuff up, found a... Let's make this Georgia. What if he, what if he found a dead deer in the middle of the road and he had to get it out of the way? So he grabs a dead deer and he drags it. Okay, now, now I can drive my, my ancient Israelite ATV down the road again because I've, I've, I've had to pull the dead... Well, well touching a dead body under the Old Testament law, made you unclean. In the same way that touching the holy meat, if you were a priest, made whatever you were wearing, it made you pure. So this is in reverse. In fact, if you were to go so far in uh, Numbers chapter 19, this is not on your handout, but there are a lot of... I'll actually, y'all brace yourself. I'm going off script. Numbers chapter 19. Listen to the degree to which a dead body could defile you. Starting in verse 11. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and the seventh, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not pure himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. We don't spend enough time on that phrase. Cut off from Israel means removed from the covenant. That was a horrible penalty. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. Now listen to verse 14. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean. Even if you didn't touch it. 
That an, uh, that an a dead body was so supremely unclean that to even go into a tent with it after somebody has died meant that you were ritually unclean. And Haggai says, if a person who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, if Jim Bob, who has dragged the deer out of the road, comes in the house and touches the pot of stew, now guess what? It is unclean. Holiness didn't pass that easy. Unholiness did. So the priest answered and said it shall be unclean. So let's take a look at this from the perspective of the first thing that God said. If you cannot be made holy by someone else's holiness, can you, by your unholiness, affect others? Legitimate question. Does it make any difference? Have you ever heard anybody say this? I don't understand what's so wrong with it. It's not hurting anybody but me. Ever heard anybody say that? It's my business. Why are you in my business? Whether or not I do this is my business. Whether or not I go there is my business. Whether or not I... Whatever, it's my business. I don't understand why you've got a problem with it. It doesn't affect anybody but me. Is that true? I think we're about to find out it's not. It's not true at all. The priest said, no, it, it's unclean. God speaks in verse 14 and pay very close attention to this. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. The Jews in the Old Testament were extremely conscious about the ritual purity of their community. Because you could not serve God. You could not go into the tabernacle. You could not have fellowship with Him if you were unclean. So they were extremely conscious about whether or not they had done something that made them ritually unclean. We've been preaching through Acts on Sunday night. And a couple of months ago, God was getting ready to send Peter to the house of a Gentile. And Peter was afraid to go into it. Why was Peter afraid to go into this Gentile's house? Well, I might touch something that would make me unclean. Then, what am I going to do? I won't be able to go. I won't be able to serve God. I won't be able to go into the temple because I'll be unclean. And God had to teach Peter, Peter, my blood is enough to purify anybody. So don't worry about whether or not the Gentiles are unclean. The Jews here were concerned about the same thing. They were concerned, well, we can't serve God unless we're clean. They were right about that. They were wrong about whether or not they were clean. And God got in their face and said, you cannot serve me because you are unclean. But God... We are serving you. We're building your temple. We've got your altar up. We're offering sacrifices. We're doing everything you asked us to do. But here was God's point. Because there was sin in them, not on them. Sin is not the kind of thing that you can just wash off from the outside. 
There was sin in them, not on them. Because of the sin that was in them, everything they set their hand to was defiled, even their service of God. Everything that they offered, defiled. Every service that they did, defiled. Every tithe check that they wrote, defiled. Every hymn that they sang, defiled. Every Sunday school class that they went to, defiled. Every Bible study they signed up for, defiled. Every fifth Sunday fellowship meal, defiled. We have this tendency to think, just as humans, I'm not saying as Stapleton humans, I'm saying as humans, we have this tendency to think that our level of purity before God, that busy equals holy. Not busy equals unholy. That if they would just get more active in the church, they'd get their life right. That's not how it works. If there is sin in here, then that sin defiles all of the busyness. All of it. Well, I'm going to make God happy. I'm going to sign up for this Bible study and I'm going to go. No, that's not how it works. That doesn't make God happy. Because what you're doing is you're trying to buy His approval. That's sinful. It's defiled. Well, maybe I'll make God happy if I sing in the choir. Maybe I'll make God happy if I have a choir. <laughs> we need a music minister. Pray for one. No. If you're trying to make God happy by doing this, you have not dealt with the real issue, which is the sin in your heart. If there's sin in your heart, if there's sin in your life, if you're hugging it, holding on to it, making peace with it, then every good action you do attempting to dig yourself out of this sin hole, it's having the opposite effect. It's defiled. It's bringing unholiness into God's presence, not the opposite. But Josh, I, I do. I go to church. I give to the church. I don't cuss. I don't drink. I don't name me any number of things. It doesn't deal with the problem, which is you haven't been to the altar and been made holy by the blood of the sacrifice. Instead of you Growing in personal holiness, the sin in your heart is defiling every good thing that you would otherwise want to do. This is why when somebody says, well, I don't have to be a Christian to do good things. You know, it, it blew my mind. Now, I, I, I must be honest up here, okay? Uh, one of my arguments for years has been, what, say, say disaster happened. Right, like we've had all these, we've had all these hurricanes recently. It's, it's been horrible, especially the, I mean the destruction in Puerto Rico, I mean in Texas, in Florida. It's it's been horrible. And I used to say, you never see the atheist disaster relief truck in town. Anybody ever seen that? I've never personally seen it, but I wanted to Google the statistics. To see if that was actually true. Believe it or not, there is an atheist disaster relief organization. Several of them. Blew my mind.
to know that they existed? Because my first question is why? Why, why do this? They well, because they're people and people are valuable. No, you're borrowing that idea from us. You're an atheist. Why do this? Well, I don't have to believe in your God to do good things. You know that's true. Whether or not they believe in him, they're made in his image. Which means they have some idea of, of good and bad, of right and wrong. They know what things are good. They know what things are bad. And they don't have to believe in God in order to do good things. They can do good things because they're made in his image and they know what good is. But what good in eternity, what benefit to their soul does doing these good things have? None. How can you say that, Josh? I know Christians who do believe in Jesus and they had never so much as lifted a finger in any disaster relief. And you're telling me that the atheists get no benefit because they drive semis into destruction zones and they feed the hungry and they clothe the naked and they bathe the dirty? Probably not personally, but provide the water? You're telling me that there's no, yes, I'm telling you there's no benefit in eternity for your souls for that. Why? Because of this. Even the good is defiled by the sin on the inside. You cannot be holy by doing good things. You must be purified first. Otherwise, you bring your defilement to everything you set your hand to. There's no escaping it. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And by the way, if you go read Matthew 23, Jesus talks about the altar and the gift that's on the altar. I think Jesus is thinking about Haggai when he says this. I think Jesus is pointing you toward Haggai when he says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you, are out, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It doesn't matter what's on the outside. It matters what's in the inside. And even if what you see on the outside is good, if there is sin living on the inside, the good on the outside is defiled. Well, Josh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What do I do about this? If I can't do good things to make God happy, if I can't give enough, if I can't work enough, if I can't come to church enough, if I can't read my Bible enough, if I can't pray enough, if I can't you know, <clears throat> buy groceries for the needy enough, if I can't sing in the choir enough, if I can't give to the Georgia Baptist Children's Home enough, if I, can't, if I can't do enough of these things to please God, how am I going to please Him? You can't. Jesus has done it for you. 
On that altar, shaped like a cross 2,000 years ago, the blood of the sin offering was poured out for you. All you have to do is come to the altar and come to the sacrifice and be covered in the blood of Jesus and you are made pure. You can come before the presence of God. You can serve Him and not bring your defilement. You can serve Him in the holiness that belongs to Jesus Christ. And you cannot fear the uncleanness brought about by sin anymore because Christ will have taken it away. Just because you're busy doesn't mean you're holy. There might be a little old lady somewhere shut in at her house who can't read the Bible anymore because her vision is so bad. Her voice might be so weak that she can barely be heard when she prays. But I promise you, hell will tremble when she hits her creaky little knees because she has been made holy by the blood of the sacrifice. And she can go before the presence of God with a purity that is not her own, but that comes to Jesus Christ. She's not busy. She can't be involved in 15, 16, 23 ministries. All she can do is manage to get down on the floor beside her bed, quote the scripture in her mind she can remember because she can't read it anymore, and pray to Jesus to accomplish His will. And the demons shake when they see her coming. Because she's been made holy. But somebody, maybe here, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, might have walked in this morning with their head held high, their chest puffed out, confident in their giving, confident in their service, confident in their singing voice, confident in their membership, when there has never been any contact with the blood. You know what all of that means if there's been no contact with the blood? Nothing. Nothing. I don't care how... I, I, don't, I, I like the lights on. I do. But as far as salvation and rightness with God is concerned, I don't care how much you give. That's between you and God. I, I don't know. I have no idea what anybody in here gives but me. I'm going to get in good with the pastor. I'm going to give a lot. No, you're not. I'm not going to know. On the flip side, I... I, I any of y'all are welcome to know what my wife and I give. That way I can talk to you about giving and not be a hypocrite. You can check. I've, I've told Linda, if you call the office and ask what the pastor gives, she'll tell you. It doesn't bother me. That's the, that's the one person that will work that way. You can call and ask what other people give, she won't tell you. But, but as far as what you give, I don't know. And frankly, I don't care. It's between you and God. But that's not going to buy his favor. Your service is not going to buy his favor. Your attendance is not going to buy his favor. Your Bible reading, your Bible study, it's not going to buy his favor. The only thing that ends with you favored by God is whether or not you've been covered by the blood. That's it. And I'm not standing up here yelling at you to do better. I hope you understand that. If I ever get up here and preach a do better message, somebody need to pull me aside and knock me upside the head. I'm not up here to preach do better. You can't do better. I'm here to preach that Jesus has done better for you. I'm standing up here doing the opposite. Doing the opposite of the opposite of do better isn't do worse. It's to stop trying to do in order to be good at all. Go to the altar. 
Go to the altar shaped like a cross and go to the sacrifice that looks like a man named Jesus. Let his blood cleanse you and make you holy and stop with this unclean, defiled charade. If you're here today and you have never come to the cross, you have never been made holy, you need to end the charade. I marked this because when I started planning this sermon... I didn't know this was the hymn we were going to have today. I I didn't know. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son who yielded His life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. To every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Are you purified by the blood? Because that's the only thing that will do it. So I'm giving you an opportunity today, and I'm going to give you a challenge today. If you've never come to the altar, by the way, this, is, this up here is not the altar. This is not the altar. This is a step onto the stage. We call it an altar because it's a space available for praying if you need to. But the altar was the cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago. If you're here today and you have never gone to the altar, you have never gone to the cross. But maybe people think you have. You're faking it and you know it. You've got everybody in here full. Except one. His name the Holy Spirit. And if I know him, he's giving you a fit right now. So here's your question. Are you going to listen to him? Are you going to tell the Holy Spirit, no, be quiet so that I can reject you and fool all these people into thinking that I know you? As a pastor, and I know it's about to get heavy, but I feel like I need to say it. As a pastor, I have a rule when it comes to funerals. It was taught to me by a professor at seminary. Especially if it's somebody you don't know. Don't preach them into heaven. Don't preach them out of hell. Because one person knew their heart. Them. I can look at the witness of their life and... Sometimes I can say, based on their testimony and their life, I think this person knew the Lord. And that's what I'll say. I will never pronounce somebody saved. As a church, we'll never do that. We'll never pronounce you saved. We'll accept you on the basis of your testimony and what we see is a repentant lifestyle. We don't give you salvation. Your church membership, that's not your salvation. If you're sitting in here and you're faking it today, it's fake. And one day, God forbid, if I have to do your funeral, I won't preach you into heaven. And I won't preach you out of hell. I'll say what I believe to be reasonable based on your word and your life's testimony. But at the end of that day, when they close the doors and turn the lights off, it doesn't matter what I said. It doesn't matter what everybody else believes. It matters what Jesus believes. It matters what Jesus knows. 
Are you faking it today? Are you serving in defilement because there's sin inside? Come to the altar. You can deal with that right now. Joyce and Abby are going to lead us in a couple verses of a hymn. You've got several options to respond if you need to. You can come down the aisle.